0: want to begin this morning with a quote from one of my favorite preachers. You wouldn't have to guess. You wouldn't need over two guesses to know who that might be. Um, Dr. John MacArthur. I'm going to hate it when the Lord takes him. Um, He's getting up there. What a great expositor. What a great servant of God. He says this, The course and the quality of our lives are determined much more by our decisions than by our circumstances. So I want you to think about that. I think it's true. I think we all know it's true. If we've lived 15 minutes, we know it's true. Let me read it again. The course and the quality of our lives are determined much more by our decisions than by our circumstances. You don't have to look very far in the Bible to... Confirm this, we can go to Adam and Eve. Now, their decision to not believe, trust, and obey God affected the course of human history. We could read about Noah. He decided to believe, trust, and obey God. He saved his family and his progeny. You guys remember Kadesh Barnea, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. They decided not to believe, trust, and obey God. They didn't believe God was God enough to give them what he had promised. They spent 40 years in the wilderness and died there. Another one of my favorite accounts is the account of Gideon. He decided to believe, trust, and obey God and outnumbered 450 to 1. He and his men handled the occupying army. I could cite Endless examples in Scripture to support the fact that our decisions, particularly for or against God, have much more to do with the course and quality of our lives than do our temporal circumstances. It's just true, isn't it? I know you hear it just like I do. It's a pretty much universal pastime for human beings to always be complaining now I know none of you complain. I complain sometimes, don't I, baby? Just every once in a while. But it is a—it is the universal pastime of humanity to complain about our circumstances. Of course, we read a uh, David Paul Tripp, or is it Paul David Tripp? I think it's Paul David Tripp. Um, we've been reading his book, and he, of course, you know what he calls complaining anti-praise. <laughs> if you can get that in your mind, it's helpful. Complaining is anti-praise. I love that comment that he made. The undeniable fact is, to a very large degree, our circumstances are quite often a direct result of our decision against God. or simply never factoring Him into the decision-making process. Regarding the deplorable state of mankind in the world, humanity and rebelling against God in a word started the snowball down the hill, right? And then we complain about all the pain and suffering we caused. Now, you don't have to read very far. You just get into the third chapter of the Bible and you realize why we don't live in paradise anymore. Why do we not live in paradise anymore? It's you. And it's me. It's our forebears. We're all guilty, Romans chapter 5 says. We're all guilty in the fall. I do grow weary, and I hear it a lot as a pastor over the years people blaming God for the consequences of their own decisions. I've heard this many, many times. Beyond being boring, uninteresting, and wrong, it's slander. It's slander to blame God all we need to do is look in in the mirror really and read our Bibles this is the clear teaching of the Bible mankind is culpable you and I are culpable we are responsible you don't get to blame God you can't win that argument you won't win that argument God has always offered rebellious man a decision. He puts this decision before his Old Testament people. Listen, Deuteronomy 30, 19. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you might live. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today what gods you will serve. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah challenged the people. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. You remember how that verse ends there in 1 Kings? But the people did not answer him a word. So to to not decide for God is to what? To decide against Him. To decide against Him. You know, you've got billions of people walking the planet who have simply decided not to decide about God. Well, the Scripture's pretty clear. They have already decided about God. A decision to make no decision is a decision God says to you and me I have set before you life and death blessing and curse, heaven and hell you choose, we talked a lot about it last couple of weeks, Isaiah 65 1, as we noted, God says here I am you decide it's your call, here I am nobody gets to say I couldn't find you, nobody gets to say I I didn't know you were there nobody gets to say that Ezekiel 33:11 God says this I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked turn back from your evil ways why then should you die So you have God has put the decision in front of us right He has put the decision in front of his creatures In continuing to study Hebrews 11, not only does this great chapter define and illustrate genuine biblical saving faith, there is a progression of faith that overlays the chapter. And I want to talk about that just for a few minutes. Again, in review, verse 1, God defines biblical faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm reading from the New American standard, and we synthesize that down to its essential elements. God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. I do not have faith in my faith. And I can't tell you again, the many Christians I met in Milan coming through the church, people tend to have faith in their faith. Well, I have faith. And it's like that, that's as far as they can go. They can't talk anymore. We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in our God. Of course, verse (laughs) 6, the verse God used to change my life, tells us that without faith it is impossible impossible to please God. We, We must not only believe that He is, we must believe He's a rewarder. And if you don't believe He's a rewarder, you'll never live out your Christianity. You'll fold in the world. You'll be afraid. You'll be intimidated. You've got to believe your God is faithful, your God is competent, your God is a promise keeper. Your God will show up when you take a risk for Him in the world. You won't take a risk for Him in the world if you don't believe He's good. You won't. You won't do it. We are looking to the reward. It's the title of the sermon, it's what Moses was doing. Man, Moses had a good life. He was a shepherd. Had a nice wife, nice flocks, very comfortable. He could see the end of his days, retiring in prosperity and ease. And then God came, and all of that would change. So we see this progression of faith uh, laying over the chapter. And I just want to pick up here this first progression that we see. We talked about it several weeks ago. that, That God's word initiates faith in the life of the true believer. It's always God and God's word. He warned Noah. Noah built the ark. He called Abraham. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He promised Sarah. Sarah conceived Isaac, the child of promise. Real faith always begins with the initiative of God. Secondly, in this progression, verses 13 to 19, we see that if if real faith resides in the heart, it will manifest itself with an inner response which spills out into the life. So there's always an inner response which spills out into the life, an outer response. We saw that in the text. Noah's inner response was reverence. It's right there in verse 7, and he built that ark. Abraham's inner response was radical trust. It's seen in his actions. He left Ur, not knowing where he was going. By Sarah's inner response of faith, she received the ability to conceive. So there's always an inner response to God's call, to the Word of God, and then we work it out. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Amen? Amen? For it is God who is at work in you. Amen? It's God's initiative. He gets the glory. You don't get to brag, and neither do I. If you weren't here last night, you missed a really good sermon. You missed a really good sermon about these things. Hebrews eleven sixteen. 16 I just have to throw this in there because I love it. God says, you know, people who live like this, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Don't you love that? There's nothing else like that in Scripture. The third thing in the progression I want to point out this morning as we look at Moses' life, as we see this, this saving faith, this biblical faith, this genuine faith, it does not turn away from obeying God when it gets hard. And again, Moses was set for life. He was comfortable for life. He could see the end of his days. Now he's got to go stand before the most powerful man in the world and demand that this man let his people go. Now, you've got to have some faith. You've got to be looking at God or you don't do this. Right? You don't do this. Unless you're looking at God. One old dead preacher said it like this Living by faith in God isn't easy. Now, I wish you'd have been here last night. Most of you were. The modern church thinks it is easy. It's just pray the prayer. It's all good. If we read our Bibles, we see that, you know, while that may be part of the beginning of faith, that's not the definition of faith. Walking with God at all costs is the definition. It's God's definition of faith. Living by faith in God isn't easy. It's not supposed to be, as that old dead preacher said. It's not supposed to be. God will always push you out of your comfort zone. Why? Because he loves faith. He delights in faith. You can't please him lest you live your faith. It's not about the prayer you prayed or the ordinance you did. Ultimately, it's about the faith exhibited in your life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You don't get to stand before God and say, I prayed the prayer. I'm sorry. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. It's going to be about the life It's going to be about what was in the life. It's about the fruit of the life. Real faith believes that God is and that God is good and it acts on that belief. In verses 17 to 22, God briefly mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph and Moses. But I want to push through. You heard Joe read the text. I want to push through to verse 23 and illustrate this third point about biblical faith, is always willing, albeit sometimes trembling. Now, if you've never trembled, I, I, I want to say something about maybe you've never gone very far with God. Now, if you haven't trembled in your obedience, maybe you've never really gone very far with God. The people in the Bible are trembling a lot. Moses, trembling before a great God, went back to Egypt. We'll talk a little bit about some of the details there. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. When Joe read that, I thought, "I I bet your parents thought you were a beautiful child. I couldn't help but think that. Did they? Okay. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of his edict. You know, Moses' story begins where all of our stories begins. It begins with mom and dad. So to all of you who have children, and all of you who desire to have children, and even those of you who are grandparents, there's a pretty good message here for us. Do you see how the parents live their lives? What does it say there in verse 23? How did their parents live? By faith. <laughs> it was by faith. At this time, just a little background, you guys all, I'm sure you all know the story. They were being held to slave labor by the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh was afraid that the, the Egyptians were, pardon me, the, the Jews were multiplying. So he decreed that all the Jewish male babies should be put to death. Moses' parents had two choices, allow their son to be killed or and save themselves or defy the edict. There was no middle way. And the text says they were not afraid of the king. So, what I want to say to you parents, future parents, and possibly to some degree grandparents, what does your life say to your kids? What does your life say to your grandkids? You know, Karen and I were away for 20 years. And I told her, that's probably the best witness we could give to our kids and our grandkids. You know, anybody can take them to the ice cream shop. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But for children and grandchildren to see their parents serving the Lord... That is a better thing. Do you see how far reaching your your faith as a parent is for your child? God honored the faith of Moses' parents. He protected them and he made provision for Moses' survival. God used Moses mightily and ultimately he becomes one of the greatest men who ever walked the planet. And it started with whom? His parents. Man, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for parents, especially in this culture. I'm so glad I don't have to raise my children in this culture. It was all set in motion by the faith of Moses' parents. Again, what are you setting in motion for your children are you giving them a godly legacy, an inheritance of faith? Are your kids exposed to the beauty, value, greatness, and worth of God because of how you live? Do your kids see you face down the challenges of life by faith in God? Does your life shout to them that God is and God's a rewarder? <laughs> I had a business colleague one time. I was about to go to... Uh, Italy. And he said to me, oh, I would love to do that. And I said, do it. He said, well, I need to go to seminary. I said, go. He said, well, I got, I got my wife and my kids. I said, what? If this is of God, if God is calling you, you have to go. It'll be the best gift you ever gave your wife and kids. Yeah, you know, we've got this stupid thing we think. We've got to leave a pile of money to our kids. You know, I heard MacArthur say, that's the worst thing you can do to an unbelieving child, is to leave them a pile of money. Put it in the kingdom. Put it in the kingdom. But I told the guy, I said, man, you want to really love your wife and kids? Do whatever God says, whatever it is. That's, let them see you love Christ like that, if that's the call. You got to go, man. You got to go. You know, we all know this. The experts tell us that, that parents are the most important teachers a child will ever have. Again, what are you teaching your kids and your grandkids? Verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses when he had grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, the title of the sermon, just a little background. I know you guys all know the story. Uh Moses' mother, after three months, could no longer hide him, put him in a basket, put him in the Nile. And in the providence of God, the daughter of Pharaoh found the baby. And so Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt at the zenith of its power. You guys remember how uh, Stephen talked about Moses in Acts 7:22? He was educated in all the learning of Egypt, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. And this man, as he grew up, he ultimately faced the decision. It's why I started the sermon with decisions. You have decisions to make. Every day you decide. By either action or inaction, you decide. I'm all in with God. I'm not. Moses faced this decision. To align himself with the wealth, power, prestige, comfort, and luxury of Egypt, or to align himself with God and the people of God? Same decision you and I have to make. Do I preeminently desire God above all things, or is he peripheral? And I always make the point with you, if God's peripheral, you're in big trouble because he's insulted. He cannot be peripheral. It's not real if he's peripheral. It's religion. And by and large, God's pretty clear. I hate religion. Lest it's real, which is a heart wholly in love with Him. Are you preeminently desiring, seeking, and pursuing God? We talked a lot about that last week. Psalm 63. So Moses faced the same decision you and I face. I love how Jesus talks about it over in Matthew 6 23. For where your treasure is, what? Tell me. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where is it? <laughs> you know? Is it comfort and ease and luxury and entertainment and prosperity and stuff? Are you still available to God? To be used mightily? Are you still available? Are you still being used? Moses was on that was on that retirement pathway. God showed up. Is your heart set on God in the heavenly country? Verse sixteen of Hebrews eleven. Hebrews eleven is crystal clear. Biblical faith desires God above all. It's why they these men and women lived the way that they lived. Men in pseudo-religion tell us that faith is something less than that. It's just a little church-going. The Bible's pretty clear. It's a sellout. It's always a sellout to Christ. True Christianity is a sellout to Christ. It's always that on the pages of the New Testament. Always. Always. It's an earnestly seeking, it's a fleshly yearning, it's a soul thirsting and longing after God. We talked about all of these psalms last week. If you missed the sermon, go out and listen to it. It might have some value for you. I know it did for me. You know, the preacher's always preaching to himself. I don't know if you know that, but the preacher's always preaching to himself. That's just a fact. By faith, Moses' actions were manifested that he desired God above comfort and ease and luxury. And that whole retirement pathway, he was driven by the compelling beauty of God, just like every Christian in this room. Again, verse 25, where those hard decisions of faith come in, Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And I'm going to make a confession. Sitting on the couch with my wife, I love to sit on the couch with my wife and watch the fire. If I love it too much, it's a sin. If I won't forsake that, it's a sin. If I'm holding it in the right place in my heart, it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) I have a wonderful wife and we love each other and we just like to be together. It's what Moses... And all the men and women of Hebrews 11 did. It's what you have to do. You have to weigh it out. You have to weigh it out. He's looking at Egypt. He's looking at the call. It's always God or sin, isn't it? And there's no middle ground here. I love how Piper defines sin. He says, Sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite value, beauty, and joy in God for some fleeting, inferior, sugar-coated substitute. It's the exchange of God for that comfort and ease and prosperity and materialism that afflicts most of us because we have, we live in the most prosperous country that's ever existed, and it's it's like it's like. It's you know, it's like a fish in the ocean. We're so prosperous and rich we don't even realize it. The fish is not even aware of the water. It in, it infects us to such a degree. Sin is pleasurable, but it's fleeting. It's inferior to the pleasure that, that God gives. And by his life, Moses, I I choose infinite, eternal beauty, value, and worth. I, I choose God. Over the passing pleasure of sin, even if it's sitting on the couch with my wife, loving it too much. I love what John MacArthur says about Moses' decision. From a worldly perspective, Moses was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from a spiritual perspective, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. Right? (laughs) Right? This is how Christians think. This is how born-again believers think. This is how we process life. This is how we process the call. We sacrifice nothing. To go with God. Nothing. Again, verses 26, verse 26 punctuates what we talked about last week. You know, this, 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 this preeminent desire for God. Above all, he says, there, there in verse 26, it says, He considered the reproach of Jesus greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. <laughs> You know, that's when you're seeing, that's when you're weighing it out and you're seeing things as they are. I like the Greek word here, translated reproach. It connotes abuse and scorn and insult and suffering and disgrace. This is the call. All of us will be, all who walk with Christ will be persecuted to one degree or another. It's just well, it's just what the Bible says. And if you're dodging that, you need to talk to the Lord about it. Why are you dodging what the Lord says will be an integral part of your life as one of my disciples? Why are you dodging it? And I'm just going to confess, there's a few things in my life I'm dodging. i got work to do myself. How would Moses ever come to the conclusion that the reproach, abuse, insult, and suffering of Christ was greater riches than the treasures of heaven? He was looking at God. God. Looking at God. Are you? Moses believed that God is and that God is good. Do you? It's Psalm 63.1 we talked about last week. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you, God. Is this true of you? And we saw last week, Psalm 63.3, because of your loving kindness, because your loving kindness is better than life, I give myself away to the discipleship, to following the Lord we keep seeing this over and over again in Hebrews 11 these men and women looked past this life and into the next they were captivated by the spectacular magnificence of God and he fueled their lives can i can i share another thing i've learned on my path uh, my, my, my missions professor in seminary, he'd been a missionary in Brazil for quite some time. And he said, you know, I went down there because I loved the Brazilian people. I love them. You remember this? Did, you, did he tell, did you t- say this, yeah. tell you this story? He said, after about a year, I didn't love any of them. <laughs> and God taught me, God has to be loved first. And only if I love God first can the rest pour out of me and be of any value at all. I love that story. I love his candor, his transparency. It's true. You are no good to the kingdom lest you are sold out first to God. I mean, you're just, you're just playing around the margins, right? If you, if you think you can, you can do any good in the church without first selling out to God... You're just nibbling at the margins. Moses' life said, I love this beautiful God. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it costs. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to trust him. Beloved, this is what our life should look like. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Once more, a little background here. Exodus 2 tells us the first time Moses left Egypt, it was out of fear. He had killed an Egyptian slave master. And uh, because he was beating an Hebrew slave, and Pharaoh heard about it, and Pharaoh was after him, Moses fled. You know the story. I'm sure the Lord gave him a beautiful wife. He married her, settled down. Life was good. Life was good. God came. And it got better! (laughs) Right? It got better. You think Moses regrets anything? You think he regrets one thing? You think Stephen regrets being stoned to death? You think any martyr down through the history of the church regrets it? Or do they glow? You know, do they shine like the sun before their Savior? Thankful for the honor to be used up for God You know, if you read those chapters there in Exodus chapter three and four, Moses struggled mightily with the call of God. Some of you can relate. It's the common experience of all who encounter God. Obviously, a common-sense life is just a lot safer. It's a lot more manageable. And I always love that account. You know, Moses had uh, some excuses there. They were pretty lame, just like yours and mine. And God just kept saying, I'm God. It's like between the lines, shut up. I'm God. Moses believed it. And he obeyed God with an irrepressible anticipation. He was looking to the reward. <laughs> now, I know some people are too spiritual to look at the reward. They're just too spiritual, not interested in reward. It's not about that. I don't, I'm too spiritual for that. I'm too pious. I think that's a backhanded slap at God. God says, I reward my people. And then he says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, I am a rewarder. If you come to me and for me and after me, I am a rewarder. Obviously, God is enough. <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm just teaching the Bible here. If I'm wrong, tell me. I'll change my sermon. I'll change it. Moses got it. He believed it what does a man do when he genuinely believes that God is God and God is good, and he's looking at the reward? He's poured out. He's poured out. I don't think any of us are going to stand before the glorified Christ and think, man, I wish I hadn't given so much. I wish I hadn't, you know, done X, Y, Z, because that was so costly to me in a temporal sense. It's not going to happen. I know what's going to happen with me. I fear unless God does something uh, something supernatural, I'm just going to be, man, why didn't I completely pour myself out? I'm sure it's going to be a head slap for me. I don't know. He may be gracious. It may not involve a head slap. A self-inflicted head slap. So. This decision that Moses made—it's the same one you and I have to make. Do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you believe he's a promise-keeping God? Do you believe he's competent? If you do, you will fight through any doubt, and you will—you you will plunge in. I think—I think in in uh, in Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, he says they. They plunged into obedience. Abraham, it was on Abraham. Abraham plunged into obedience. Are you plunging into obedience? You know what I'm saying? Man, you're going to be dead real soon. You're going to be dead real soon. Are you going to be guilty of plunging into obedience? Man, I want to be guilty of that. I want to be guilty of that. I want God to indict me for plunging into obedience in the courtroom of God and I want to be guilty I want to be guilty there's something about this Greek word here about him leaving um, about him leaving Egypt it's more than physically leaving it's a forsaking and I think it was in the text that Joe read it's a forsaking So I bring my back on the world, and all the world has to offer, and I'm going with God. It's reminiscent of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Luke 5, when they left everything and followed Jesus. Why do they do that? Because Psalm 63, as I've already mentioned, uh, they lived like they lived because God's loving kindness is better than life. It's better than retirement. It's better than a lot of money. It's better than comfort and ease. It's better than sitting on the couch with your wife. As an old man, (laughs) it's better. How did Moses live like this? He endured as seeing Him who is unseen, right? (laughs) This is Christianity. We live by seeing Him who is unseen. He's our our juice, He's our fuel, He's our motivation. Seeing Him who is unseen... I like how this verse underscores what we talked about in Hebrews 11 verse 1 God is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and again I want to say this I want to synthesize that God is the substance of things hoped for God is the evidence of things not seen if you're not sure of that that God can be trusted you'll uh, let me just use the analogy you won't get off the couch He is our fuel. Real faith, and I'm closing now, and I'm only going to close once. Real faith is real men and real women in love with the real God. Real men and real women deciding to believe Him and obey Him in real life. So, the question for you and me is what have you decided? They tell me, and it makes sense, that you can't be a little bit pregnant. I, I'm pretty sure that's true. The same thing with Christianity. You can't be a little Christian. You can't be a little bit Christian. It's an insult to God. It's an insult to Christ. I'm a little bit Christian. No, you're not. (laughs) If it's not Psalm 63, you're not. Nobody gets to be a little bit Christian. You get Hebrews 11 and you're crying out to God to teach you Hebrews 11 or you don't understand anything about the God of the Bible. Say, Jim, you're pretty fired up. Well, I've had to deal with some stuff in the last few weeks in my own heart. That's not good for you, (laughs) because I yell more, but it's good for me. So saving faith is way more than praying a prayer and getting baptized. It's going with God. The old dead preacher is right. Real faith isn't easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Real faith requires a decision that you must consciously make. And then it requires you to act on that decision that you have consciously made. This is what every bit of life boils down to. You must decide for or against Christ. And to not decide is to decide... You must decide to receive him as Lord and Savior or reject him. Indifference to God is blasphemy. Indifference to God is wickedness. It's evil. We've talked a lot about it. Indifference will take you to hell. You must decide to set your your heart on the things above or the things of the world. It's your your call. You must decide to radically obey him or, or play church with him. It's your call. Moses decided to look to the reward. What have you decided this morning? What have you decided John MacArthur is right? Our decisions in life mean everything, everything, for time and eternity. And here's God's invitation. Deuteronomy 30:19: "I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live.